Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. So good to be with you. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met yet, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, that opportunity, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, very soon. Uh, hey, would you please pull out your copy of Scripture this morning? We're starting a new series in the book of First Peter. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. And uh, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, let me encourage you. Uh, you can slip out the back. I promise I won't look. Nobody will either. And, uh, and grab one in the back there. And, and if you don't have one at home, please keep that as a gift from us. If you do have have one at home, but you need one on a certain nightstand, so you use it more, you can keep it, and, and whatever reason, uh, we, we'd love to gift that to you. And I, I'm convinced that as we open God's Word, and as we read it, and as we understand it and apply it, it, it will change your life. It has mine. Well, uh, church, I uh, want to uh, mention to you, whoa, got to get my notes going here. Uh, back in the fall of 2018, uh, back in the fall of 2018, I, I and our family were new to Marshfield, and not only were we in a new city and a new uh, uh, neighborhood and a new church, but but I was actually in a new role. I, I hadn't been a lead pastor before. Uh, I was, for 20 years, a worship leader, a worship pastor. And as uh, Christy and I prayed and as we engaged in some conversations, some study, different things, the Lord sort of edited my calling from being a worship leader primarily through music to being now a worship leader primarily through the teaching of God's Word and, and through leadership and the things that I do here now at Cornerstone. And so uh, here we are, and we're grateful to be here. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, the first conference that I attended in the new role. I, I've attended several conferences, uh, professional conferences, ministry conferences throughout the years, and the very first conference that I went to as a lead pastor was in Blackhawk at Blackhawk Church in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, now, Blackhawk is a large church, right? It's one of the largest free churches in the country, and and there I was in a breakout session with a whole bunch of other uh, pastors from around our, our region. And I got to tell you, I felt a little bit intimidated. <laughs> uh, not so much because of the guys themselves. They were nice guys. They were very kind and, and, and gracious. Uh, but, but I felt intimidated because there I was with these people who for so long I had wondered, what do those guys do when they get together? <laughs> what, what happens in that room? I thought for sure that they sat around debating superlapsarianism theology all the time. And I just wasn't sure I could cut it. Now, if you ask me what superlapsarianism theology means, I'll, I'll point you to a book, but I wouldn't be able to tell you, all right? <laughs> but I, I wonder, do I really belong here? I mean, is this my, is this my spot? And, and I sort of felt out of place. You ever felt that way? You ever been somewhere you felt a little bit out of place? Maybe like you, you didn't belong, whether maybe you're on a date, you know, if you're single, or, or maybe you look back in a previous time in your life and you're trying to figure out this new relationship and, and uh, you're not quite sure how it's going to work. Maybe you're a student, you're trying to find your place in an ensemble at school, a class, maybe a sports team. Uh, maybe you're in a new job and, or you're in a new city. Maybe, maybe you're a new grandparent or, or maybe uh, a parent and, and you wonder, does this fit me? I mean, how do I function here? What does this look like? How does this work? Well, uh, church, around AD 64, uh, AD 64, in the time when the Roman Emperor Nero was rising in power, and, and he was beginning to show signs of what would become a very barbaric totalitarianism, uh, the, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to a group of displaced Christians who were struggling to find their footing in a new environment. 
And see, before Nero, there was the emperor Claudius. And Claudius was known for a colonization strategy that he would take whole people groups and export them from uh, more, more centralized cities in Rome out into the fringes of the Roman Empire, out to those places that Rome had conquered and was now trying to establish with the Roman culture and the Roman way. It, it was a way that he could do two things. He could get rid of some of the problems closer to home, but then he could also establish these colonies out on the fringes. And so it's likely that Claudius looked around and he, he saw these people who were zealous, these, these Jews, these, these Christians, and they were, they were getting a little bit radical, a little bit different from the Roman way of life, and yet they were enough entrenched in it that he thought, you know what, if I move them away from this centralized location out to the fringes, uh, perhaps they can do us some good and they won't be a bother so close to home. And so uh, the, these people are, are those who've been displaced out into the region of what we now call Turkey. And it's likely that Peter writes his letter, his first epistle, 1 Peter, to these displaced men and women to encourage them in their new surroundings. And you can imagine, I mean, with the political environment, uh, being in a new place, uh, forcing people to move creates somewhat uh, of a significant insecurity for those people, whether it's economic or social or relational, familial, uh, vocational, all these things. And then on top of that, there, there was this rising tyrannical dictator. See, Claudius gave way to Nero. And Nero was already signaling his vitriol for Christians, uh, this, this new sect of Judaism called the Way. It was an unsettling scenario. It was challenging for these people. And so it's into this environment that Peter writes his first epistle, his letter to travelers. And it's with this background that we begin to read. Okay, so this is First Peter, uh, chapter one, and today uh, we're going to be in verses one and two. All right, so buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> all right, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, uh, the first thing that we need to establish here as we read the text is who wrote this letter. And I'm going to posit to you that Peter wrote the letter. Now, how, why do I say that? Well, the text says Peter wrote the letter, all right? Uh, so so that, that's what's going on here. Peter uh, writes to these people. And you guys remember Peter, right? Uh, many of us know about Peter. Peter was that, that guy who's sort of famous for being the guy who opens his mouth and sticks his foot in it fairly often, right? I can relate to that a little bit, all right? He, he's the guy who, who gets out of the boat. He walks on the water with Jesus. And, and, and then his faith begins to slip and he starts to sink and he cries out, right? Uh, he's, he's the first among the disciples to recognize the true messianic identity of Jesus. But then a breath later, he's the one that, that's rebuking Jesus when Jesus starts to talk about his impending death at the hands of, of men. He's going to save the world, but he needs to die in order to do it. <laughs> and he's the guy that says to Jesus, look, Jesus, no matter what happens to you, no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to be with you. But then in the next page, uh, we, we turn it over and we see that Peter denies Jesus three times when it really counts. I mean, Peter's got a history here that, that not only are we aware of, but that the people, his, his readers are aware of. And we know this, this account of Peter from the Gospels, right? From those four books that, that outline the history of Jesus' life and the people around him. And we know that Peter was the guy whom Jesus said, to whom Jesus said in Matthew 16, uh, I tell you, you're Peter, 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. (laughs) And as we read that in the book of Matthew, we're scratching our heads a little bit because this is the guy who, again, has open mouth, insert foot syndrome, right? But God does something miraculous in Peter's life. And so Peter becomes not not only this guy who's sort of bumbling and and fumbling his way through, but but he becomes the guy who Jesus meant for him to become when when he took him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And and he revealed his glory and his fullness. And Peter glimpsed the kingdom. Jesus was prepping uh, Peter for something. Peter is the guy who in Acts chapter 2 is is the one when the Lord sends the Spirit uh, uh, down at Pentecost in these tongues of fire and the people start hearing the gospel in their own language. Peter is the one preaching. Peter's the one preaching and thousands are saved. It's miraculous. It's awesome. And Peter is the one who demonstrated the authority of Jesus when he healed the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3. And then it's Peter who, who once denied Jesus outside the courts is now inside the courts in Acts chapter 4, and he's defending Jesus vigorously, powerfully, beautifully, at at a great risk to his own uh, personal health, his own safety. It was Peter who was threatened and imprisoned and beaten for his bold and unrelenting stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And it's through Peter... Uh, This man who was once reticent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, whom God chose to say, Peter, you're the guy. I'm going to bring you to Cornelius. And and here the gospel begins to advance into Gentile territory in Acts chapter 10. And so when Peter writes, quite quite humbly, I might add, when Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he needs no further introduction. The, The church knew who he was. In other words, he's saying, look, you guys know who I am. I'm an apostle. I'm sent by God. You know my relationship with Jesus. You know what he said to me. Here I am. I've been sent by God with a message for you. I I was there when Jesus gave us the Great Commission. I was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit empowered us to, to share the gospel, not only in Jerusalem and in Judea, but in all Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. I was there when that happened. And I know what it is to suffer for the faith. I know what it is to stick my neck out. But I don't need to tell you all that. You already know. And so simply, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And with that, just with that simple reminder, uh, Peter begins to, to write to these travelers. He brings his letter to these travelers, these sojourners. He calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. We're going to unpack what that means. But, but these are people in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. This is the place that is now called Turkey. And these Christians are there in these newly colonized Roman jurisdictions in this, in this, in this new country. And word choice here is very intentional for Peter. See, it's, it's not just a salutation. It's not just a generic introduction. Peter addresses the exiles. The exiles, the, the, the elect exiles of the dispersion. And, and see, ever since the fall, God's people know what it means to live in exile. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, uh, Adam and Eve were excommunicated from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> that was the only place they ever knew. Noah was, was tossed about in an ark for a long time. Abraham was relocated from Ur. When, when Abraham was there in Ur, called Abram, God said, I want you to go to this land that I'm giving you. He, he, he was dis, dislocated. He was moved from Ur to Canaan. 
And then famine, uh, two generations later, drove Abraham's grandson, Jacob, from the promised land, from Canaan, down into Egypt, where the people of God resided for 400 years. And then God sent Moses. And before bringing them back into the promised land, God, God led them out through Moses into the wilderness. And, and God's people sojourned there. Now, they could have gotten there sooner, but they disobeyed God. They, they rejected God's provision. And so they, they were out there in the wilderness for 40 years. These are sojourners. They know what it means to travel. And they're not just using a Volkswagen retrofitted to, to go to national parks in the U.S., right? I mean, they know. They know what it means. But then they get to the promised land. And they're there. And they're enjoying the land uh, filled with milk and honey. And God provides. And there's this beautiful Davidic dynasty. And they flourish. And, and Solomon comes along and they're still flourishing. But then uh, through a series of poor choices amongst their leaders, the nation splits. And over time, they drift further and further away from God until God says, I'm sending you back to exile. <laughs> I got something else to teach you. And they go into Babylon. And there they find themselves in Babylon pining for the homeland. And eventually, uh, God brings them back. But not all of them. Not all of them. He brings a significant portion of the population, but, but just as significant is the dispersion, the exiles that continue to exist in Babylon and in the nations to which they've been sent through the Assyrians and through other empires. And church, I'm convinced that when Peter addresses his letter to the elect exiles in the dispersion, he, he's not only writing to this specific group of people in Turkey, but he's writing in the context, the greater context of, 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 of the people of God who have been experiencing and participated in exile throughout their history. And these are people who at least metaphorically continue to find themselves in exile in several ways today. See, I find it interesting that, that you and I, for several years, and, and I'm not going to get into timelines, I'm not a historian, uh, I'm not even a, a cultural missiologist, but, 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 but I, I observe that you and I have been living in a, in, a, in a society that, if not embracing outright Christianity, has in many ways embraced Christian values for many years. But recently, and again, I, I don't know how recently, we're not going to weigh into that, but let, let's just say recently... It seems that the trajectory of our nation and, and certainly of the Western world is, is moving towards an increasingly what we call post-Christian environment. Post-Christian. Culturally, uh, the, the nuns are becoming more and more popular. Those who have no religious affiliation at all. And no, people that have never, never been to church have no idea what the gospel says. That's why it's so important that we got our story straight in, in the last message. Where, where, where Christians are no longer seen as, as bastions of righteousness or of truth. And, and they're not even seen as those goody two-shoes that do the right thing all the time, right? That, that's one thing to be seen that way. It's not necessarily our desire. But at least uh, Christians were seen as standard bearers. But now, often, Christians are, are seen perhaps like they were seen in the Roman Empire. As a nuisance. As a threat. As narrow-minded or antagonistic or judgmental even as evil. And we need but read the news. If, if we resist popular culture and we maintain that, that, for instance, human sexuality is to be expressed in the context of, of, of a marriage between one man and one woman, like it teaches in Genesis, then, then we're seen as bigots or worse. And we say that humbly. At least we ought to. 
but that's our reality. And it's not that we always handle the conversation very well. In fact, sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes we don't handle that conversation well at all. But it's not just about how we handle the conversation anymore. It comes down to what we believe about Scripture. What does Scripture teach? And it's a complicated time. Does anybody agree with me on that? It's complicated. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. It it was in AD 64. Did you know that? (laughs) It's not actually a new challenge. It's a recurring challenge. And here we are. It's complicated. It was for them. It is for us. And so Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion, to to Christ followers, to Christians who find themselves in increasingly disfavorable positions. And, And friends, some of us are here this morning and we're wondering, how do I do this? How do I live out my faith in these difficult times? If I'm an educator, I'm told that there are certain things that I may and may not say that come into conflict with my faith. How do I navigate that? How do I deal with that? How do I honor the people that have asked me to do that? How do I treat them as Jesus would? And yet, how do I maintain the standards that are the bedrock of my faith? If I'm in the medical arena, how how do I navigate the different ethical challenges that come in in front of me? Uh, If I'm in business, how do I represent Jesus there? If I'm in a blue-collar industry where I'm being pressured to conform in ways that stand in opposition to my growing biblical conscience, how do I do that? If I'm a student... How do I, how do I honor Jesus in the classroom when, when some of the things that I'm being taught come into conflict with my faith, whether I'm in college or in high school or even in elementary school? How do I stand firm in my faith amidst increasing pressure to capitulate to a worldview, an ethic that I know opposes what I read in scripture? It doesn't all oppose, but some of it does. And how do I deal with that? How do I, how do I wrestle with this? How do I watch the evening news or, or listen to a popular podcast or, or read one of the plethora of articles on contemporary issues and sense that my biblical conscience is being tweaked, but also feel the pressure of ignoring that conscience in favor of what is easy, even if it's contrary to scripture? How do I deal with that as a Christian? Friends, if you're not wrestling with those questions, I promise you, it's, it's, it's to come. Get ready. But, but my sense is, and my, my guess is, that most of us are wrestling with those questions at some level or another. How do we do this? And if you find yourself in one of those categories, or maybe you've got a, a category that I didn't mention, then this letter from Peter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, this, this is for you. This is a letter to you. This is a message sent by God from the Apostle Peter to the exiles, to those in Roman colonies to be sure, but also for those of us today who might feel pushed to the edges. Now, note, and as we come back to the text, these aren't just any exiles, right? These aren't just any exiles. These are those who have been chosen by God to be with God by the foreknowledge of God the Father, as it says in verse 2. 
And friends, this is a big deal. Remember I said that, that Peter chooses his terms carefully. And, and, and so the term elect is packed with significance. And see, up until this point, it's been the Israelites who have been the people of God, who have been chosen by God for God's redemptive purposes. Prior to the New Testament, the Israelites were known as God's chosen people. And, and see, God chose Abraham, this man of faith, to be the father of a people through whom he would bless all the nations of of the earth. And the Jews had a special and a specific plan from God to redeem the world from sin. Isn't it, isn't it amazing then that now Peter, this, this man who at one point, as I, I mentioned, resisted bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, this, this man who once said, I don't know, I think this is a Jewish faith, I don't think it's a faith for everybody, God corrected him, and he, he graciously responded eventually. Now, this man calls both Jews and Gentiles alike the elect exiles of the dispersion. This is significant. <laughs> it's a big deal. In other words, he, he's admitting it's no longer just the Jews who are chosen. The elect now includes the Gentiles as well. And so among other things, what, what Peter's doing here with just a few short words, and don't you love it how the biblical writers can say so much in just a sh few short words? You think, preacher, could you do that sometimes? All right. <laughs> I love that Peter, with just a few short words, says, look, you feeling a bit out of place? You're not quite sure where you fit in? You're concerned about your kids' faith. You're worried about the culture that's creeping in. Uh, well, guess what? <laughs> You're in good company. You're in good company because the people of God have always felt like that. And the God who has chosen and engraced and protected Israel is also the God who will do these things for you. <laughs> He'll do that for you. I love what Edmund Clowney says. He says, what mighty assurance Peter gives to these Gentiles. I'm convinced that, that the primary audience here is a Gentile audience. There are Jews there as well, Jewish Christians. But, but Peter's primary audience is a Gentile one. Clowney says, what mighty assurance Peter gives to these Gentiles. As, as Christians, they're a people of God. Not, not just as Israel was, but in the ultimate spiritual sense. Chosen in Christ those who were no people are now the objects of God's free grace and choosing love. God's their father. Not, not simply as God was a father to Israel, his beloved son, but as God is the father of Jesus Christ, the eternal beloved. We are adopted into the family of God upon putting our faith in Jesus. And therefore, we are brothers and sisters of him as those chosen for firstborn inheritance. <laughs> all the rights therein, praise God. Now, church, we could have all kinds of discussion about the significance of election and, and predestination and foreknowledge, and we could have a lot of fun. Superlapsarianism, I think, comes into play there at some, in some place. But, but here's the bottom line. Church, election is about grace. The doctrine of election is about grace. It's, it's a reflection of the reality that Pastor Nate uh, brought up in the worship set already this morning, that we are a people who were once dead in our sin. We were those without hope. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were once dead in our sin, but God brought us up out of death and into life. And, and election is about God's choosing to save us from death and bringing us into life. Church, dead people don't save themselves. God chose us, and so he engraced us if we put our faith in him. 
with life from death. And so if, if you're in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're, you're one of the elect. Okay? You don't need to worry about that. You're one of the elect. You're chosen. And that means you're engraced. Now, the, the next question there, and we'll address it briefly here, is how does that, how does that jive with my responsibility? <laughs> How does that jive with, with what I'm supposed to do? And remember that the gospel that we told here in the last five, six weeks is a gospel that says God sets the mark. We miss the mark. Jesus hits the mark. I must stand with Jesus. And so standing with Jesus means repenting of my sin, showing, demonstrating honest remorse over my sin and resolve to live for Jesus. It, it means believing that what Jesus did at Calvary is what actually happened, that that is sufficient to save me from my sin. And then confessing my faith and my trust in what God has done. That, for that, I'm responsible. I'm responsible to put my faith in Christ. How does that work with choosing? God's choosing of us? To be honest with you, I'm not really sure. It's a challenge. There's some tension there. But here's what I know from the witness of Scripture. That God's foreknowledge and my responsibility somehow go hand in hand in God's sovereign design to save his people from their sin. And election emphasizes grace. (laughs) Our response emphasizes faith and both are essential in salvation. Amen? With me? All right, good. Now, doesn't it stand to reason that, that the displaced might wonder from time to time. God, are you sure? Are, are you sure? I mean, are you really sure that, that, that I'm supposed to be here right now doing this? I mean, is this really part of your design? And perhaps all of us who, who have followed a calling from God or, or found ourselves undesirably dislocated, if we're, if we're honest, we could say that we've wondered these things. God, is this really what you meant to do? But in in the concept of election, uh, Peter uh, says to his readers, look, if you're the elect, if you're in Christ, you're chosen, you're not a mistake, and where you are is not a mistake. God promised to bless the nations through his people, and as his people have been dispersed out into the diaspora, out into the nations, guess what? God is bringing the gospel, he's bringing the light of Jesus Christ out into those nations. The gospel goes forth. And so, yes, you may be uncomfortable where God has you. You may even feel threatened. I'm I'm convinced that Peter's uh, addressees did. Nero was a threat. Culture was a threat in their day. But though you may feel threatened, you're not abandoned. You're not abandoned. You're the elect. You're God's chosen. He loves you. You're products of his grace. And where he has you is where he'll use you to bring glory to his son to bring glory to Jesus. And with that, uh, Peter moves to verse 2. And so I, w- I want to read these two verses again. Get, get ready. It's a long, long stretch here. All right. <laughs> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> so here Peter, Peter, an apostle, writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion who are chosen by God, and he reminds them. 
He reminds them, look, you're chosen for something. You've got a purpose in God's economy, in God's plan, as God is bringing all things together under the order of His Son, under the authority of His Son. God is doing something. What's He doing? He's bringing you to the place of redemption. (laughs) He's redeeming that which was dead and bringing it to life. And with that, He reminds His readers who are in this place of exile of the core of their faith. You ever need to be reminded of what really counts? Boy, I do. I can get lost in my head sometimes. I can get lost in my emotions, lost in my circumstances. I need to be reminded of what really matters. And here Peter does that for us. And so he reminds us of the core of our faith, of who we are. We are a chosen people for redemption with the three persons of the Trinity actively engaged. This is awesome. This isn't a small thing. This is God investing himself in all three persons for our salvation, for our redemption. You think you're a mistake? <laughs> you think you're wandering as a mistake? Look, look what God in all His glory has done. And this is what this looks like. Three things. First, you're a part of the plan. You're a part of the plan. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And I've already emphasized the, the doctrine of election, so we're, we're not going to belabor that here, except to quote Karen Jobes, who says this. She says, with this prepositional phrase, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, Peter reminds his readers that the God who took the initiative in their lives has drawn them in to an intimate, loving, and redemptive relationship with him, but also one in which God claims supreme authority over their lives. Such a reminder is apt at times when Christians are troubled by the circumstances in which they find themselves. Confused about how to live and tempted to doubt God's goodness or faithfulness. (laughs) It's a confusing time, isn't it? And and friends, we need to remember that that God is our Father. (laughs) God loves us so very much. And also, God is our King. And both of those things are, are absolutely true and absolutely necessary to understand. Are you troubled? Are you confused? Are you ever tempted to doubt? Trust the Father's plan. It's a good plan. And you're a part of it. You're a part of it. He loves you. He'll he'll provide for you. But we must submit to Him. We must submit to His Word and what He teaches us. He knows. It's a good plan. Church, the Father's plan is to redeem those He loves. Now, What's the process? What process does he use to do that? Well, uh, that's where the Spirit comes in. And then Peter references the Holy Spirit. He says we're redeemed in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, sanctification is one of those big words that we use from time to time in church that, that bears uh, an explanation, that, that deserves an explanation. It's a term that often gets used to describe the process by which Jesus' character, by which Jesus' shape becomes clearer, becomes more evident in us. It's, it's a process that, that happens over the, our, our lives as we move from salvation to glory. It's what happens often after we're justified, after we're, we're saved. We're sanctified. We're being sanctified. And it is that. But it's not only that. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, the the Holy Spirit does a regenerating work that makes us new. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, uh, If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. They're a new creation. And the Holy Spirit does this regenerating work in us, uh, this making new kind of work in us when we put our faith in, in Christ. 
And when the Holy Spirit does that, when he remakes us in this way, he sets us apart for God's purpose. He he sanctifies us, in other words. That's what sanctification means at its most basic level. It means to be set apart. In in the the sanctification process, from, from grace to glory, if you will, we're being set apart more and more for God's glory. But when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit says, okay, this one is mine. (laughs) This one is reserved for the Father. Uh, This one is sanctified. This one is part of the team, if you will, part of the family, okay? That's what it means to be sanctified, to, to be set apart for God's holiness and glory. In, in, in 1 Peter 2.9, we're going to read in a few weeks, per, perhaps maybe a month, we're going to read that we are God's chosen people, that we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're a people set apart for his own possession to proclaim his glory, to proclaim his excellencies. That's, that's sanctification. And again, my friends, when, when God redeems us, he doesn't mess up. He doesn't mess up. If you're chosen in Christ, you've been set apart for Christ's purpose by the Spirit of God for the time and place in which you find yourself. You're not in the wrong place. You're redeemed with purpose. (laughs) And I know there are some tough places. And I'm not saying that God doesn't move us from place to place from time to time. We've, We've actually already articulated how that works sometimes. But church, the place is typically not God's primary concern. It's the person in the place. It's the person in the place. And what he means to do sometimes is not remove us from the difficult place, but to make the person to fit his glory in that space, in that place. And that brings us to the, to the last part of Peter's redemption outline. See, redemption is a part of God's plan. It's carried out in process through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and it has a goal. It has a goal. It has a purpose. And so again, verse 2, uh, verse two, the purpose, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Church, the purpose of redemption is first to bring us under the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's a phrase that gets used in several places throughout the the New Testament, and rightly so. Church, we will have no redemptive function in our environment if we do not submit to Christ's authority. We can't shine for Jesus until we live for Jesus, right? We've been redeemed for obedience to Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship. We're, We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, we're we're redeemed for obedience, but not just that, not just obedience. And Peter makes it clear, when we become believers, we do so not, not by our strength, not by our power, not by our righteousness, but instead we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. Church, in the Old Testament, the priests sprinkled blood on the altar, and they sprinkled blood even on the people in order to atone for their sins, to, to, to wash them, to make them clean before a holy God. And, and when we put our faith in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews 10 says that we're now sprinkled clean from an evil conscience once for all time. Praise God, we don't have to get doused with blood anymore, right? Now, if you're a hunter, maybe that's not so bad, but uh, it's not good, right? Yeah. In Hebrews 10, when, when we put our faith in Jesus, 
We're sprinkled with the blood of Christ once and for all. And it talks about the blood of Jesus being like water that washes us in purity. Friends, in a world full of hatred and vitriol and angst and pain, you know what God has designed us for? Sure, to, to, to be obedient under Christ, but, but we're also trophies of His grace. We're trophies of His grace. I've been busy at work cleaning up that moose skull I told you about. I want to have a beautiful trophy. Now, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I get it, right? But I want to bring that into my office. And before it comes into my office, I need to make sure that maggots don't get in there and all that stuff. It's got to be cleaned and ready, right? I, you know, experience, I don't know. You'll have to ask me later, right? But church, God has designed us not to be trophies of our ability to earn his favor, Praise God. I can't do that. I can't clean myself up. We established that, didn't we, already? There's none righteous, not even one. But God has designed us to be trophies of His glory and of His grace. And when He moves in, when He sprinkles us with the blood of His Son, we're washed, we're made clean, we're made ready. You find yourself in the midst of of graceless people sometimes, difficult situations. Is the the talk in your office mean-spirited, maybe, unkind? Do you you feel the upswell of anger when when someone threatens your sense of well-being, your sense of of, of living the good life, living a life uh, of freedom and joy? Here's my challenge. Let yourself be a trophy of grace. (laughs) Let your song be, I I once was lost, but now I'm found. I, I was blind, but now I see. Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Remember grace, friends. Live in grace, rest in grace, and lead with grace in this confusing and challenging world. You know that pastor's group I was with in Madison? <laughs> well, it was probably obvious by some of my questions that, uh, that I didn't quite feel comfortable, and I'll never forget this one pastor leaned over to me. I actually don't remember who it was. I, th- I think I know, but I can't say for sure. And, and he said, you know, I, I, was a, I was a worship pastor once, actually. I, I did the transition that you did. And, and let me just encourage you. <laughs> you know, that, that stuff that the Lord did in you for the last 20 years, those, those convictions, that whatever character he put in you, whatever, uh, you know, ideas about leading that he gave you, just bring it with you. Just keep being who you are. It's a different context, a different place. But, but who God's made you to be, that's, that's what he wants to use. In other words, he, he said to me, and this is my, my paraphrase, he said, be who you are, not where you are. Be who you are, not where you are. That's the message that Peter is going to deliver here in this glorious letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Be who you are, not where you are. Friends, you can't always control your environment, can you? Sometimes the environment just, it blows up. It it does things that are beyond us. Life around us gets intense sometimes. Often, it's beyond our ability to influence. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. There are, there are, there are moments, there are seasons where God will use us as salt to preserve, to, to, to defend, to do righteous things in the world around us. We ought to step into those. But ultimately, we can't control what's going on out here. What we can do is invite the Spirit of God to change what's going on in here. 
so we can be who we are, not, not where we are. Friends, let, let the character and direction of Jesus be your North Star. Amen? Be who you are, not where you are. And, and church, this is the message of First Peter in so many ways. We're going to see it over and over and over. Stand firm in what Christ has done in you, not in what society says you must be. And, and wherever you might be, foreign country, a difficult work environment, a challenging home life, remember, you're not yet where you're going. You're not yet where you're going. Praise God, you've been displaced from Eden. You're in the diaspora. You're a traveler. You're an exile. But that's, that's where you are now. But in the now, you're being formed for the not yet. God has made and is making you new. God has sanctified you, and He is sanctifying you as He's preparing you to live forever with Him in glory. Keep your eyes on the new. Be who you are in Christ, not where you are in the world. And as you look to Him, as you are who He's created you to be, I join with Peter in saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it be multiplied to you. Friends, Lord willing, we're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into 1 Peter. I'm really looking forward to it. And in, in Peter's message, even next week, we're going to find this glorious message of hope and strength. And throughout the book, we'll even find strategy. How do we navigate this life in this crazy world? And as we do, I'm convinced the Lord is going to use us together in increasing measure to tell the story that changes others' stories over and over again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for how you use even the most challenging, uh, difficult, painful, unsettling experiences of our lives to do exactly what you mean to, to shape us from the inside out. Lord, I'm reminded of what you said to Samuel when he was looking for the next king of Israel. Don't look at what, what man looks at, but, but, but look on the inside. For the Lord doesn't look at the outside of appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And God, we want to be the kind of men and women and students and children, wherever you place us, who demonstrate the character and the grace of Jesus in us over and over and over. And Lord, we trust that as you do that, that soul-forming work in us, that you will do exactly what you mean to through us as we together seek to love you and to grow people and to serve our city well, and to reach the world. So God, thank you for meeting us here. And if there's anybody here who's in that displaced place, remind them hope is coming. Help them to have their eyes cast on you, Jesus. And it's in your name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.